The context in which disease occurs is important. The connecting of public health data sets to geography so we can see the patterns and trends and maybe even develop some hypotheses that need to be investigated further. All, all of that is very important. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. You just heard Andy Dent, Program Director at Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, or CDC, explain the role location intelligence plays in CDC's understanding public health emergencies and disease outbreaks, such as COVID-19. Esri Chief Medical Officer and Health Solutions Director Esti Garrity investigates how the largest public health agency in the United States uses geospatial technology to combat the most threatening challenges to community health. Andy, welcome to the Science of Wear podcast. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm really happy to be here with you. You have been applying mapping to tracking and understanding public health and outbreaks for literally decades. And now you are program director of the Geospatial Research Analysis and Services Program for the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry and CDC. So your program is known as GRASP and the agency, ATSDR, is a federal public health agency of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And ATSDR protects communities from harmful health effects related to exposure to natural and man-made hazardous substances. So it sounds like you go broad and deep, Andy, in the work that you do, and uh, glad that this audience is going to get to know you a little bit. How has CDC traditionally used location technology to monitor and understand just how diseases spread? Uh, that's a great question. And, and CDC has been in the process, even since the agency began in the 1940s, of using maps and eventually geospatial technology to understand how diseases spread and how environmental exposure occurs. So, of course, back in the 1940s, some scientists at CDC did employ maps to better understand the patterns and trends that they were seeing. Uh, Flashing forward to the 1990s and even maybe to the end of the 1990s, that's when we began to have more and more tools available to us that we could actually do mapping on a regular basis in a repeatable way that could inform our investigations into the spread of disease and also environmental exposure. In public health, there is this really strong connection between location and our health outcomes. So what do you think that location actually tells us about vulnerability to disease, addiction, and other kinds of threats such as climate change? I think that location and place is important to build a context in which disease occurs and we experienced public health challenges and we experienced well-being as well. So understanding that context is key. Right now, our group is exploring something that we're calling the geospatial determinants of health. And the idea is that we believe there are a set of drivers that greatly influence the health that we experience. And so now we're kind of zeroing in on a set of categories, if you will, of of areas in which we see geospatial drivers as being very important in health. 
Um, as you might expect, the environment, the natural environment and the built environment are highly influential in terms of the health that we experience. And we've seen that in the literature. Uh, we, we also know that our socioeconomic status and the communities in which we live are highly important drivers of the health that we experience. Additionally, as we investigate the geospatial determinants of health, we're seeing population connectivity become highly important, not just connectivity between populations, between people populations, but, but connectivity between people and the natural environment and the animals that live in that environment. And finally, the public health policy uh, context is very important as well which states are leading the area to design better interventions to uh, help their communities in need and which, which states maybe are lagging and could use a little push in that area. So I think that place builds that context that helps us understand how we experience health, um, how we experience well-being, and the different things we can do to make a positive difference in those areas. And part of what we will be doing with the geospatial determinants of health is to use that framework to raise awareness of the connection between place and health and to promote that awareness. And even perhaps to use that framework to build it into the, uh, the curriculum of public health schools you know, across the United States who are, who are educating our young professionals who will be solving the problems of the future. Andy, you talked about all of these different drivers of public health, and there's the context that you mentioned, the social and behavioral context and the built environment, and a number of others, including policymaking. And I'm wondering if you consider geospatial technology, geospatial science to be one of those drivers, or is it something that's more cross-cutting among all of those different groups? That's a great question. In our formulation, there are determinants that all have a place-based uh, dimension to them that affect health. We're just getting into this and we're kind of seeing a four or five broad categories emerging. Uh, the first category is the natural environment, as you might expect. Where we live and the environment that we experience, of course, that impacts our health. The second large category of, of drivers that are inherently place-based in nature is our built environment. Uh, how do we access our health care? How do we access our healthy food? Can we go to a park or do we have to walk along a dangerous sidewalk to get to that park? So the built environment is, is key as well. Thirdly, there's the socioeconomic and cultural context in which we live our lives. The communities in which we live affect our, our diet, the way we live, who we talk to, what we hold dear, and more. The fourth broad category that we seem to be seeing uh, coalesce is the population connectivity domain. And that domain is all about who we connect with. Do we connect with people in our community? Do we connect with people in a, in a, in a urban area that's further away? And also involved in that is what animal populations do we connect with? So there's a connectivity between 
us and other items in our environment, animals and people that, that, that drive the health that we experience. And then finally, there's public policy. Public policy, of course, drives a lot of how public health works, the interventions available, the screening available, the raising awareness, you know, the messaging. So we're seeing these different domains in a framework that we're provisionally calling the geospatial determinants of health. And ju to just like underscore everything, all these items inside this framework we see as being place-based in nature, being geospatial in nature. I know that people would never forgive me if I had the geospatial guru from CDC uh, on, on this call and uh, didn't ask about COVID. So, so I'm gonna ask you a few questions about COVID and can you tell me how is GRASP increasing our understanding of COVID spread and the variance of risk between different communities? GRASP has been in the middle of the COVID event, really since the, the very early days. And so what we bring to our understanding of COVID, and by our, I mean, you know, our general broader understanding is both science and technology. In the technology area, we bring the COVID data tracker project, what essentially draws data sets together and presents them geographically with charts and graphs that add meaning. Research and GRASP has come to life in a portfolio of projects, typically most of which we examine COVID cases and deaths in vulnerable communities. And we're hearing more and more and more that these vulnerable communities are, are hard hit. They're experiencing problems. They're, they're having problems accessing vaccines uh, in many instances. And they're just challenged more than the, the communities that are not the minority communities. So we've done research in those areas to understand which of those communities are experiencing these challenges and how they're experiencing those challenges. And we're working with HHS to better understand the non-COVID health effects that this event has brought upon our minority communities across the United States. So we're trying to understand how delays in healthcare are eventually going to play out with health, health outcomes that, that uh, need to be addressed but have not been addressed because they're, they're, those visits to the doctor's office have not occurred or visits to screening facilities have not occurred. So with COVID, we bring the science, we bring the technology. In what ways has the spatial monitoring of COVID through all of the research that you've done and through the dashboards and other kinds of mapping tools, how do you think that's changed the way that we perceive the role and the importance of geography in the modern world? It seems to me that, that uh, there has been a, a change in the perception. What do you think? I very much think that the COVID events and the, the technology, the data visualization, the research, and the use of geography and geospatial patterns to build public health interventions. I think that all of that has come together to dramatically raise the awareness among, of course, our nation, but maybe even the broader world, that geography is important. The context in which disease occurs is important. The context in which we deliver interventions to help communities that are struggling is important. 
uh, the, the connecting of public health data sets to geography so we can see the patterns and trends um, and maybe even develop some hypotheses that need to be investigated further. All, all of that is very important. So, you know, I know that GRASP studies all of these different spatial relationships. Uh, you have a lot of researchers and scientists, and you're looking at um, the connectivity, you've said that word also, between disease and uh, different kinds of public health concerns and operations and climate change. So can you tell us a little bit more about what location intelligence has taught us about the relationship uh, among those things and how policymakers are leveraging that knowledge to reduce community risk? Climate change, of course, as you know and you've seen, uh, has triggered a variety of environmental challenges that we all face. We have extreme heat events. We have extreme flood events that, that perhaps we didn't see as often before. We have other situations with air quality that are often challenging and often affect some of the populations across the United States that struggle with asthma. So we, we see these events and Geospatial science and technology and mapping can help us understand where communities are that are more vulnerable to these types of events. So where are the communities that might struggle with heat and be in an area that is more likely to experience a, a heightened heat event? And so I, I want to say that the generation of this research and this analysis to understand where communities are that experience these type of events, that, that's only part one. That's, that's part one. We have to do that to better understand where these communities are. Part two is using that evidence to do something, to inform the public health interventions that are often led by our state officials and sometimes our local officials. So if we identify communities across Chicago that may experience a problem with a high heat event, that information needs to be operationalized and brought to life by health officials who may add a cooling center or two in communities of need. So let's talk a little bit more about how those uh, areas of need are identified. I mean, there's so many factors, uh, poverty, lack of access to transportation of various kinds, uh, crowded housing situations, all of those can increase a community's suffering and it can also impact their ability to be prepared in the wake of any kind of disaster, natural or man-made. Uh, and we call this condition social vulnerability. And GRASP identifies and monitors those communities through a database uh, that we all love, actually called the CDC Social Vulnerability Index. So can you talk about that a little bit? Why is it important to track and measure social vulnerability? Vulnerability is key to understanding how communities might respond to and recover from public health threats of all kinds. So vulnerability dimensions include those items that you mentioned, poverty, minority status and language, transportation, housing, and more. And we use the SVI, which bundles together 
variables across those domains to understand where our communities are that need the most help and might need special attention if they're confronted with a public health emergency. One of the things that I would say has brought success to SVI is the way we promote it. We, we haven't just sat back and waited for adoption to occur, but we've worked with our partners across the CDC to say vulnerability is important, and this is how you measure it. We've worked with our, our partners at the state level to say the SVI is available to you, and you can email us at any time to ask a question on how it's used. We also have developed, of course, the required documentation that enables our state partners to integrate the SVI into their state recommendation documents. The Wisconsin legislature built the SVI into its policy for the distribution of funding to communities in need. So instead of using whatever approach it, it used in the past, it decided that targeting vulnerable communities using the SVI was a smart approach. And so that's how they do things now in Wisconsin. In terms of COVID-19 testing, the Office of the Surgeon General actually used the SVI to position COVID testing locations in and around vulnerable communities across the United States. Of course, these communities need public health intervention that reaches out to them instead of requiring them to come to the intervention. So the testing process implemented that was guided by the SVI was highly important and a good example of how that downstream effect was actually brought to life. So Andy, for the CDC, one of the world's leading public health agencies, obviously, uh, we want to know what's next. What's on the horizon in its use of geographic information science? Number one, I would say, is better and more advanced institutionalization of geospatial science and technology in place in the work that we do at the CDC. So that would be better integration of geocoding, for example, in surveillance systems. That would be better integration of place-based thinking and place-centric thinking into some of the research that we're involved in in our uh, organization. That would be uh, embedding a geospatial review into our, into our standard clearance process to make sure that every map produced is effective and communicates as it should. So I'm always interested in advancing the institutionalization of geospatial science and technology into the work that we do. So it's not necessarily that that's a new thing, but I want to see more of it. So it's still out there on the horizon. It's still something we can be grasping for. Part two, uh, or number two, part B, the democratization of data generation and data gathering and involvement of people. Um, and I'm using that term broadly. Uh, I'm thinking about uh, teams on OpenStreetMap who are coming together to digitize sections of Africa that have no digital framework that exists. And, and projects like OpenStreetMap 
don't just bring together people to generate uh, GIS data, but they also build in a very robust validation process so we can ensure that the data that's generated by this team of digitizers scattered around the world is good and usable and reliable. And we know which areas may be a little bit suspect. So that is something that falls under my label, the democratization of, of data. Secondly, there's going to be more and more generation of geospatial data based on the personal devices that we use, our phones, of course, that can record our activity space, but also medical devices. And we'll see this more and more, the, the, the inhaler that can report the location that it was used and maybe even the air quality that it was inside of when it was used. So these kind of things I think we'll see more of. And it's exciting to see data built and gathered in this way. I'm also looking forward to more geospatial literacy. Raising geospatial literacy, especially among the public health community, is what we need to have. We need our MPHs, our toxicologists, our chemists, our environmental health scientists, everyone who works in this domain to understand that place is important and that we have technology and tools to help us make sense of place and to build that context around which or inside which environmental exposure occurs or access to healthcare occurs or uh, uh, access to healthy food occurs. So geospatial literacy is something we're always striving towards. We want everybody to graduate from a public health PH program with a little bit of knowledge about why place is important. Finally, I believe that the activity space of populations is something that's gonna be more and more vital. And it's going to be something that we're gonna have more and more data and tools to explore. Uh, so activity space, as you know, is, is not just where we sleep, but it's where we work, it's where we learn, it's where we worship, it's, it, it can be where we exercise, it's where we move. And that activity space defines the environmental exposure that we experience. It, it defines the healthcare that we're able to access. It defines the, um, uh, the opportunity that we have for exercising in a, in a healthy area like a park or on a greenway. So I'm looking forward towards activity space being more and more built into the work that we do. It's pretty substantial, I have to admit, and uh, you got me excited. So I can't <laughs> to, uh, to watch you guys go and, and do this stuff. And I would love to partner with you, Andy, and grasp on the geospatial literacy. I'm so excited by that idea and that effort that you're working on. And really, I just want to thank you so much for spending the time, for your insightful comments, for your vision, and really for the amazing work that you're doing to protect and improve our collected health and well-being using GIS. So thank you for being here. Well, thank you so much, Este. I was really happy to be here. You know, I feel honored that you invited me. I'm always excited to be able to tell that story about what place does and, 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 and you know, add to that narrative that place is important in, in health and in well-being. So um, excited to tell the story, excited to chat with you. And if you're serious about the, the collaboration on raising geospatial literacy, 
we absolutely are on board. We would love to work with you on that initiative and just let me know how you're thinking it might take shape and enjoy talking to you today. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast, and thanks to Andy Dent for explaining how geospatial science and technology aid the CDC in quickly responding to emergencies and understanding how place can affect a person's health. If you liked this episode, please take a moment to rate Esri and the Science of Wear podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about how location intelligence enables digital transformation and drives growth, visit esri.com forward slash location intelligence.